0: Hi, this is Pastor Joshua Morocco, and you are listening to our King's Central podcast. I hope you get encouraged. I hope the Word of God brings transformation to your life and empowers you. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the Word. Take your Bibles and turn with me. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would. Yeah, please, bring those up there. They fall out of my Bible. Boy, you could preach the message yourself. I'd have to do it from memory. Thanks for finding them. Acts chapter 20, would you turn there, please? And we're going to look at verse, verse 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, and Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on, and when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story, and was picked up dead. And Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. And then he went upstairs again, broke bread, and ate. And having and after talking till daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now let's look down at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, as for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you. None of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves. Everybody say, keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away every away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, God, and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, you have not, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by the, this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege you have given me today to preach, to share your word with your people. And now, Lord, I ask that you will anoint me. Come on, people, pray in the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Spirit of the living God, come in power, come in might. Come on, just pray in the Holy Ghost. Spirit of God, come in power, come in might. Intervene tonight. You have a word for your people to encourage them, to allow our church to be what you want it to be. And so I ask for an anointing on me and an anointing on your people that when we leave tonight, we will know we've heard from you. And I thank you for what you're going to do, and I praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to see a video. Today we've been emphasizing life groups and uh, there's some marvelous things God's been doing. Would you listen?
1: My name is Katie Hong. I run a family life group out of my son's home.
2: Hi, my name is John Kuge, and this is my wife, Jean. And it's been my privilege to uh, facilitate a a life group for seniors. They call us Wisdom Plus.
3: Hi, my name is Chris,
2: and this is my wife, Joyce. We are the Della's. And we lead a marriage life group
1: for the longest time god was telling me to step out and do this life group and um, i sat on it for a while because i didn't know how to do it really i wasn't sure if i could answer their questions or if i would be effective if god could really use me because i didn't feel like i knew enough one of my son's girlfriends actually joined a life group with another church and immediately I felt God tell me that I told you to do this and you are running out of time. So I jumped right on it after that. I did not want to be disobedient and so called Pastor Anne right away. And um, got our life group started as a young adult starting a new family it was something that
3: we we had a hard time finding um, we've tried many different life groups but a lot of them are like are much older than us and so they're in a different season of their life and so when Chris actually was the one I was like you know what we need to start a life group and it took me a while to get into that like to be in the same agreement because first I didn't feel like we're ready I didn't feel like we're um we're how, qualified right. to do it, but then God was the one who like spoke to me and um, really rebuked me in a way that, you know what, you do this and um, I'll give you whatever you need.
2: It was good, we grew, we saw a lot of miracles. We saw new people coming um, who were just brand new to the church and they would, they would feel more comfortable in the life group than they did in church.
1: I asked my son if it would be okay to use their home uh, to run this life group. And I think that because, I think that was key, because they opened their home as a host to have a life group in it, even though he wasn't saved. I think that was just, God just used that to bless them. And because we were allowed to come in and and run this and all of our family gets together and after the very first night of life group two of those couples ended up getting engaged
3: i'm jenna hufford and this is kailoa okoy and soon to be after today i will be jenna okoy so after the first life group we kind of i guess we didn't realize the power of marriage
1: for a relationship and just having god as the center of our relationship. After the second night we had Life Group, my son came to church and boldly and confidently went up to the front and gave his life to the Lord.
3: After I came to King's, I think it was on a Sunday night, or maybe it was a Wednesday, went up front and I gave myself to the Lord. It's just, it's been a complete turnaround. It's been a blessing since then, because we have met so many different couples. Um, uh, We've had couples who just moved from the mainland that um, found a community. Our kids were all at the same age, so we were able to do not just to do the life group that we were doing once a week, where we share testimonies. Um, We've had so many prayer requests get answered. But at the same time, outside of that, we, we were doing life together. A lot of the life group members that we started with are also now leading their own life groups. And so it's amazing just seeing that and like um, how our obedience didn't really have anything to do
1: with us. Um, It's like how God wanted to use us. I know that if they hadn't opened up their home to that, that this wouldn't have come at this time in their life when they really needed it.
3: Well, the life group was what really pushed me to um, want to be saved and to give my life to the Lord. I have a completely different outlook on life. There's... I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I can't really explain it, to be honest.
2: <laughs> when somebody asks for prayer in our life group, we keep that prayer constant until that prayer is, is answered. You know, we pray individually at home. They go on our prayer list. When we first came here, we used to be standoffish because we were so involved before in another church. But when we came here, we didn't want to get involved too soon, but having been involved these past years, these past, what, four years, five years, I kind of regret not getting involved sooner. But that's because of you, Pastor Ann.
0: <laughs> oh, give them all a big hand. Wasn't that great? Wow. This morning I preached on the subject, the we factor. I shared the first time the word we is used in the, in the book of Acts, and it's used by Luke in Acts 16.10. And we shared about the victory that God did in the city of Philippi. In fact, a new church was birthed there through Paul and Silas' ministry and through Luke. Now, a great victory was taking place there in spite of some horrible things that happened. Paul and Silas were beaten, unjustly thrown into prison. You can imagine the weight of those who had believed on Christ to see their their leaders now thrown into prison. You'd think that's the death of the church, but instead we see that God did something very powerful and turned everything for good. In fact, we shared eight steps that were taken in bringing victory and establishing the church in Philippi. Now, I'm not going to share the message again, but I am going to emphasize the final point of that message this morning because I'm going to continue it tonight. And the eighth step, which to me was the most important, is what I call the we factor. You see, Luke was with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and he was an eyewitness of everything that happened. And you'll notice that these members that made up the we factor, that were supporting Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, you'll notice very clearly they were loyal, they were faithful, and they were fruitful. In fact, when you read about them in scripture, you will notice the power of the we, the people that are connected, committed to a given ministry. And we noticed after chapter 16 that the we ends. It becomes non-existent for the next four chapters. It doesn't start again till chapter 20. You say, well, where in the world did Luke go? I'll tell you where he went. He stayed in Philippi to pastor that church. So he wasn't traveling with Paul. And um, you'll notice that this was the case because the we starts when Paul goes back to Philippi and Luke begins to travel with him again. And we pick up that story Even here in chapter 20, you'll notice that the first time the we again is used is there in verse 6, but we sailed from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread. Sounds interesting. Luke was in Philippi. You say, well, how long was he there for? Well, if you trace where Paul had gone between the first time he was in Philippi and now he's coming back, it's anywhere between four to five years. So Luke was faithful. And loyal, and he was fruitful. He developed one of the great churches of the New Testament. And literally what happened, it was the closest church to the Apostle Paul. They shared in his ministry. They were partners. You cannot read the book of Philippians without realizing the power of the we. People gathering together to say, we're going to make a difference and see things happen. Well, when you look at this text The We Company has grown. And the reason it's grown, if you'll notice, is that Paul is taking an offering that he encouraged the churches to give to Jerusalem to help the saints in Jerusalem. Now, those of you that have ever wondered about the ministry of giving, Paul does a tremendous job because this offering was crucial for the Gentile church to be able to bless the Jewish church. And so in 1 Corinthians 16, he mentions it. And he also mentions it and gives his whole theology on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So that offering was collected. And literally, they had representatives from various churches that were traveling with Paul. They became the we. There was Sepater from Berea. Aristicus and Segundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby. Timothy was with them, and Tychicus and Tro—was uh, it Tro, Trophilus? Was from Asia or from Ephesus? And so they were—they were in this we group, and Luke joined them. And what is so fascinating is that now Luke has joined them, and they go to Troas, the very place. Four or five years before that God had given a vision to Paul and Paul was to go to Macedonia even after he tried to go to Bithynia and the Spirit said no, he tried to go to Asia or to Ephesus and the Spirit said no. Why? Because it wasn't what God had planned for him at that time. And we talked about that. So oftentimes the will of God people think is what I'm supposed to do. It's not just what you're supposed to do, it's when you're supposed to do it and how you do it. And so to Paul, for example, he wanted to go to Ephesus, but God said no, because it wasn't the right time. It was clearly something God wanted him to do, but it would be in the future when he would be able to establish a church, because he hadn't met Aquila and Priscilla yet. He wasn't going to meet them until he gets to Corinth, and they would become partners in ministry and he would leave them in Ephesus and they would begin a life group and that life group would cause ministry to happen and so when Paul came to Ephesus revival broke out. God always has the right timing. He didn't want him to go to Bithynia because others had already gone. He sends him to Macedonia so now Paul and this team the we team if you will The we factor now begins to have an effect because they are now in Troas. And you'll notice something. Paul doesn't travel alone. He understands we is stronger than me. Everybody say it with me. We is stronger than me. You'll notice also that the we emphasizes the importance of being in relationship with others. I'm always so amazed by the Apostle Paul. You can't read Romans 16 without realizing how many people Paul knew and how many people worked with him. He understood that the we had to be big if he was going to touch the world. That's why we have life groups. That's why we're making an emphasis even tonight about life groups. You see, we've cried out to God for a thousand life groups on Maui alone. I'm not talking about Oahu. I'm not talking about all the other extensions throughout the United States. Just on Maui, a thousand life groups. We have almost 600 now, but we're believing for a thousand. You say, what would that do? Well, it creates relationships. Relationships. And those relationships are allowing the Spirit of God to mold people into becoming true disciples of Jesus and leaders are being raised up and lives are being changed and things are being transformed. A city is getting saved. An island is coming to the Lord. A state is coming to the Lord. I was impacted years ago when I went to Korea. The one church in Korea, the largest church in the world at the time, had 50 thousand life groups. 50,000 life groups. Boy, I went down to their offices, how they organized their life groups. And I'm telling you what, you know, the Korean people are pretty competitive as they are, but boy, when they get, boy, they had districts in every district. Boy, they were competing against the other district. And I'm telling you what, it was amazing. And what would be even more amazing on a work day They would have a prayer meeting that they would call. They would fill the Olympic Stadium with 100,000 people, all from those life groups. And I preach to those people at the Olympic Stadium. I've done it many times. It's been an amazing thing. You realize, wow, what could happen if a church understood the power of we, if they understood the we factor, and they moved forward to say, that's us. Well, you'll notice that there was a crisis in Paul's ministry at Troas. The crisis was so great that it could have derailed Paul's ministry. But the we factor was there. You'll notice that the church met on Sunday, not Saturday. There are those who tell you, well, you have to keep the Sabbath. But you'll notice on verse 7 it says on the first day of the week we came together to break bread. First day of the week is what day? Sunday. Everybody say Sunday. Sunday. So they were meeting together. It happened to be at night. Now if they were using the Jewish concept of time it would have been Saturday night. If they were using the Roman concept of night of day and night it would be Sunday night. But to the Jews... The day started at 6 o'clock at night. All we know is that it was a night meeting and it was held in a place where it had a number of stories had an upper room. And um, it was a very interesting time because Paul knew he wasn't going to be there but for that one time he probably wouldn't be back to Troas. And so he's talking on and on and on. He wants to get in as much as he can. And what's amazing is that the writer Luke, because he was there, says some very interesting things. He says there were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Now, I don't know about you, but if we were in a small room, packed, and there were torches in that room, you can understand what it must have been like. It must have been extremely warm and stuffy and smoke-filled. You know, they didn't have electric lights. They only had lamps. So you you got to realize here's a packed house, (sighs) stuffy, smoke-filled, and the speaker goes on and on. And now it's about midnight, and he's still talking. There was a young man sitting by a window named Eutychus, And he fell asleep, fell out the window, and he died. Now, how many know that would pretty well derail your ministry? And it says they picked him up dead. What a tragedy. You can imagine the shock to those who were there. In fact, you can imagine the shock to the companions of the Apostle Paul. Now think about it. if that would have happened today, what would be the first thing that would take place? I know exactly what the first thing would be. People would get on the phone and call their lawyer. And they'd try to blame somebody for that event. They'd probably say, look, it's the, it's the preacher's fault. He preached too long, and that's why my son fell out the window. Or they would say, well, it's the parent's fault. They weren't taking care of their son. They shouldn't have put him by a window. They could have said, it's the deacon's fault. There was no ventilation in the building. Some would say, no, nah, it's just plain Eutychus' fault. That's what he gets for sleeping when the preacher's preaching. <laughs> Anytime a crisis happens, have you ever noticed we all try to blame Years ago, the Lord spoke to me from this passage, and here's what he said. He said, stop blaming and raise the dead. Now, I've preached that message all over the world. Stop blaming and raise the dead. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop blaming and raise the dead. You could spend your entire life blaming this person, that person, this situation for the problem you're facing. But did Paul do that? No, he didn't. What he did, which was amazing to me, he left that room, ran down, and he literally, instead of leaving a dead boy on the doorstep of the church, he raised the dead. Now you say, well, what in the world did he do to do that? Well, the first thing he did is he embraced the problem. It says that he grabbed that dead body and hugged it. He was aware of that's what Elijah did and what Elisha did, and he did the same. He realized it was God alone who could raise him from the dead, but he was going to do his part by following the model of Elijah and Elisha. He grabbed him and embraced him. So oftentimes when we're in crisis, we ignore it. We say, well, it'll go away. This wasn't going away. Sometimes we, we simply think it's impossible, so I'm not going to do anything. Or sometimes, we, especially in relationships, we just say, well, forget it. I'm not going to even try to fix the problem. And so what should have been healed and raised from the dead lingers for on and on and on. In fact, in some families, it never ends. It goes into the next generation. The problems of a previous generation because they were afraid to face the problem and deal with it. Paul embraced the problem. And I'm sure that as he was running down the stairs to that dead boy, he prayed. And I'm absolutely certain the we factor kicked in right there because those companions of Paul knew what just happened and they began to pray. You say, I don't see that in the text. No, it's not there, but I know it because of Paul's writings, how he prayed all the time. He prayed morning and night. He prayed for the churches. He prayed. Anybody associated with him was a prayer warrior. That's what I'm trying to create here in this house, that this house is known as a house of prayer. Somebody say amen. And they began to pray. That's the we factor. That's why just before I got up to preach, I told you where I was going to be and what I needed to have you do because I know what it's like to go to a church and there's hundreds of people there I've never seen before in my life and I'm tired from traveling you know you sleep in a different bed every night you, you know you, it's, 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 it's the pits and you get up and you have to have a word from God and you have to have an anointing and I'm going to tell you what going to the church I can't feel a thing but the moment I get up to preach whoosh, and I go, somebody's been praying on Maui. You see, you don't understand this, but listen to me and listen to me well. The we factor kicks in when it comes to prayer. Those life groups, when they gather, they pray for each other. Just as Brother Coogie said, they have a list of all the prayer needs and they don't stop praying till God meets those needs. All of us need to have that opportunity. Oh, but we're too busy. We're too busy. We're watching television day and night. Wow, you're really busy. When you could be growing in the things of God, you could be in relationships, and you could have the power of the we factor affecting your life and the life of others. So I'm sure they began to pray. And then you'll notice that Paul comes down and he makes a faith-filled declaration. He says he's alive. When I first read this years ago, I thought... Wow, what a statement. He's alive. Well, did he break his back? Does he have a headache? Is is there a knot on his head? Is his arm broken? Nothing said. He's alive. I think what Paul figured is if he was dead and he's now alive, God's going to take care of the rest. Somebody say amen. And sometimes we just need to have that faith-filled declaration. God's going to do great things. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And finally, he continued to minister. Now, you'd thought, listen, uh, I think we ought to stop this service. That's, that was enough excitement for one night. Nah, Paul says, I ain't coming back here. I better give him everything I got. He gets up there and he preaches till it's daylight. You know, there are some people that get derailed in their ministry because either they make a mistake, do something stupid, or things don't work out the way they thought. They have some crisis, and they just figure, forget it. God must not be in this. Can you imagine if Paul had thought that way? A lot of the New Testament wouldn't have been written because he had one crisis after the other. He always had victory. But you'll never have victory unless you have a battle. Somebody say amen. And he had a lot of battles. But he had a victory that night. But fourthly, you'll notice that Paul also displays a victorious attitude. When you read on a little further, you begin to get a grasp of the kind of attitude Paul had. When you look at verse 21, for example, it's, it's an amazing verse. He says, look, he says, I have, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody listen to me. That was his goal in life, is to preach to everybody their need to repent and to have faith. I get a little upset with this uh, hyper-grace message where it's just, well, we're cool, everything's fine. No, 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 it's not fine. Paul understood two things. Number one, you don't get saved without repentance and without faith in Christ. You have to repent of your sin. You have to say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. If you don't realize you're lost, you'll never be found. If you think you're okay, you don't need Jesus. We're not okay. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all a mess. We're all broken. We all need a Savior. And that was Paul's message. He was committed to seeing people saved. Everybody said he wanted to see people Secondly, the Holy Spirit compelled him. Now, this is one, to me one of the most unusual verses of Scripture about the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 22 and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, listen, here's what he's saying now. He said, The Holy Spirit is telling me I've got to go to Jerusalem. All right, great. I know, Paul, that's the way you're directed, the Holy Spirit leads you. He didn't want you to go to Bithynia, you didn't go. He didn't want you to go to Asia, you didn't go. He wanted you to go to Macedonia, you went. So now he's telling you to go to Jerusalem. We got it, we got it, we got it, Paul. Great. Go good on you, as the Australians say. But then he says these words. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now let's stop right there. Every place he goes, there's a prophetic word saying, "Uh, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested, you're going to throw in prison, you're going to get beaten up, you're going to get clobbered. Uh, Now, uh, I'm just being transparent. If the Holy Spirit was speaking that to me, I'd go, I ain't going to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, I mean, let's get real here. Yet he has, it's almost like an oxymoron here. The Holy Spirit's compelling him to go. He knows he's going. And then the Holy Spirit's telling him what's going to happen when he gets there. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you handle that? You see Paul could handle that. Why? Because he understood something about life and death. Look at what he says. He said he died. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He died when he gave his heart to Christ. The old man died. A new man arose. Christ in him, the hope of glory. And so his whole world was to fulfill the goal that Christ had given him. To finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given To be witnesses of the good news of God's grace. You see, so for Paul, the issue wasn't whether I'm going to have a problem or not. The issue is, am I going to fulfill the will and purpose of God? Every one of us needs to have that kind of attitude. Otherwise, we will be derailed in our life. We will choose comfort over obedience. We will choose pleasure over sacrifice. We will choose... Sin over holiness. Because sin is easy. But if the desire of your heart is, Lord, please, let me accomplish your will. Then here's what happens. Everything revolves around that. When I was a college kid, the Lord gave me one verse. I've shared it a thousand times. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And I, I, I committed myself to that one truth. I'm going to do the will of God, and he'll bless me. That's how I came to Maui. In the natural, this wasn't the place I would come to. But in the supernatural, it was the place God chose for me. And I came, and I'm so glad I obeyed because he has given me everything I've ever desired, because I made him my number one choice. So Paul knew that no matter what came his way, he was going to have victory. So he went to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that uh, he gathered together the elders of Ephesus, because he knew he wouldn't be back there. And he says something to them of tremendous importance. It's found in verse 26. This this is a picture of his attitude. He says, therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now you say, what in the world is he talking about? I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. It's found twice in the book of Ezekiel. But let me just read the one that's found in chapter 33. It's verse 1 and following, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men to make them their watchmen, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on their own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if a watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, the man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. In other words, he says, if you know, that that person is on his way to hell and you do nothing about it. His blood is on your hands. That is a sobering thought. That's why every person I meet, as I leave their presence, I begin to pray for them. I've witnessed to hundreds, if not thousands of people one-on-one. Not all of them came to the Lord. Many of them moved from where they were to where they could be later on, they'll be open, but I'm always conscious that everybody I sit next to to a plane, on a plane, every person I, I meet, their destiny is either heaven or hell, depending on what I do and what they do. So my job is to be innocent of the blood of all men, as Paul was. That's why he was so passionate about wanting to share his faith. That's why when he gets stoned to death, he goes to the next city to do the same thing that got him stoned in the last city. That's why you can't stop a man like that because he had a vision. He realized, I've got to stand before the Lord. I don't want blood on my hands. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. It's an attitude that he had. That's why he wasn't afraid to go to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that he had to watch himself and all the flock. Listen to me. He's talking to shepherds now, to leaders. He said he'd be shepherds. He said the church is precious. Jesus died, shed his blood for people. They're all precious to God. He says, but watch yourself and the flock. That's a twofold thing. Number one, we can get so busy ministering that we don't take care of our spiritual life with God. We can get so activated in doing stuff that we forget, hey, I'm responsible to live my life in such a way that God's pleased. But we also need to be concerned about others and that's why we created this church with life groups and ministry teams so that people can relate to one another and care for one another and help one another. I'm thankful I get to preach to you and I'll try to do everything I can to bless you but I'm only one person, and God has been so kind to give us thousands and thousands of people. So unless others come and become the we factor and become a part of it, there's no possible way one man or one woman, Pastor Colleen, can minister to everybody here. Just to, just to know everybody's name is a miracle. And I used to know them, but now my brain has starting to fry But there are people that want to love you and care for you and serve and be to you what you need. And Paul goes on to say, look, you've got to guard yourself because there's a real enemy who wants to destroy the church. Probably more than anything else, we've become aware of that by this whole COVID thing. Because it's very fascinating to me. Like in Las Vegas, they'd leave the gambling casinos open, but they shut down the churches. Now, is that crazy or what? They'd leave Costco open. They'd leave Target open, but they'd say to the church, you can't meet. Now, how does that work? Is physical food more important than spiritual food? You say, well, hey, if you don't get physical food, you die. Well, if you don't get spiritual food, you'll die too. And your death will be eternal. That's why our Constitution was written as it was written with the First Amendment. With the protection of the church, the liberty that comes by a church, the religious liberty. That's why, because it was seen as that important. But our current government, our current leaders have forgotten that. At least some of them have. Many of them haven't, but some did. And so if you ever had the thought of how in the world could the church be shut down, you just have had an example of it in this last year and a half. Churches across America shut down. Did you know many churches have never opened up again? Never opened up again. They're gone. The people are gone. There's no longer a church there. It's a great opportunity for us because we're buying churches everywhere. Praise Jesus. But you grieve over the fact that the church of Jesus Christ has been decimated. There is a real enemy, friend, that doesn't like what we're doing here on Maui. But what I'm so thrilled about, there's a God who loves what we're doing on Maui and intervenes on our behalf time and time and time again. And he's created a we factor in this house of people that are faithful and loyal and fruitful. He's created a people that say, hey, let me at them. I want to minister to people. I want to help. I want to be a blessing. I want to do my part to build the kingdom of God. Finally, Paul gives us the attitude that all of us should have, and that's to live to give. He declares that I shared a little bit about it in our offering message tonight, but he lives to give. Everything he did was to live to give. There are people like that in this church. They live to give. They live to give. One of the things the Lord has taught me is that that's the way You literally receive the blessings from the Lord as you live to give. When you live to give, God makes sure you have something to give. Some of the largest givers in this church had nothing when they came into this church. Nothing. But something got on them. A desire to live, to give. And I have seen God's blessing upon the people of KC beyond comprehension. I have to pinch myself and go, whoa, this is real. God's people are experiencing the wonder of a victorious attitude. Well, that brings me to the end of this message. Don't shout me down. Don't say, hallelujah, he's finally finishing. Oh, you mean we're not going to preach all night like Paul did? Aren't you glad we're on the ground floor nobody falling out the windows? Can I encourage you to be a part of the we factor of this house? For us to grow, we must release the we factor. In crisis or in good times, if you're a part of the we factor, there's going to be people that will help you. We need each other. Stop blaming. Raise the dead. Have a victorious attitude. Let your goal be one of seeing people saved, of being led by the Spirit, dying to self and alive in Christ and finish your race and fulfill the will and purpose of God. Don't stand before the Lord with blood on your hands. Do your part to see as many people come to Jesus. Watch yourself and others. You got an enemy. But if you'll be a giver, not only will God bless you, but your giving of your time, talent, and treasure will be used to allow the we factor. Us together. Us together, the we is much stronger than the me. And we will see victory after victory after victory as a church. Stand to your feet. Come on, would you do it? Hallelujah. Oh, I'm glad you came to church tonight. <laughs> hey, Shrita, I really like you. You know, Shrita is from Malaysia, but you've been on Maui now how long? Huh? Five years. Great man. He, he leads the Haggai Institute here in, in Haggai, in uh, Kihei. We got a lot of people like that who are part of the we. God sends us people like He did, Srida. I enjoyed the Filipino choir tonight. I really did. You know, I, I tell my Filipino congregation, boy, you know, they're all over the world. Did you know they are in Muslim nations? And these Muslims, because they're so helpful, you know, they, 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 provide places, they're doctors, lawyers, they're everybody, they help even within the households and everywhere. They allow them to have church in Muslim nations when nobody else can have church. I keep telling them they're secret agents, you know, they're just everywhere. I'm thankful that God is building a, a church that has a heart for souls. I got to talk to Pastor Janelle today. This is just a daddy talking to you. She said, Dad, she said, I was really going through a spiritual battle. And we knew that. And she said, you know, on Friday and Saturday, we went house to house, started knocking on doors and inviting people to church. And We had a great Sunday. People came. And you know, when I finished knocking on doors on Saturday, I went home, and I had more energy than I've had in weeks. I even went out and mowed the lawn after walking all, all these, knocking on all these doors. And it dawned on me: isn't that the way we have victory over the devil? Is to smash him in the face by witnessing and sharing the good news. We got people like that in this church. And I pray that you'll be a part of the life groups and be a part of everything that's happening here. I'm going to ask all of you that are life group leaders and life group assistants and hosts. Some of you weren't here in the morning. Some of you were. Come on up again. I want to pray for you. Quickly come. And if you have a desire, please listen to me. This is so important. I want the we factor to grow. Just as it grew in Acts 20. All of a sudden, there was another whole group of people that were in the We Factor. I need 3,000 people, a host, an assistant, and a life group. That's 3,000 people. I've got 3,000 life groups. Amen. But can you imagine how many people that would be if you have 10 people in every life group? That's 30,000 people. Right? I mean, you know, uh, excuse me. You got 10. That's 10,000 people in every life group. That's awesome. Look at this outfit. All right, guys. Everybody reach your hands out to these wonderful folk. Hey, I'm proud of you. You're the we factor. And there's going to be a whole mess of others going to join us. We're going to have that 1,000 life group. Somebody say amen. Reach your hands out to them. Would you do it? Come on, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this company of people that you're going to use to be loyal. I hope the word encouraged you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the King Central Podcast. God bless you. Walk in power and walk in the fullness of that which God has given you.